The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's Keiko, K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Recording will begin in one minute. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this week we are live in San Jose, California at GTM's Grid Edge World Forum. So here's what's on the docket. This event is mostly centered on utilities and power sector upheaval, but we're going to kick off the show and look at oil majors. We've witnessed oil companies toy with renewables over the last decades with mixed success. Um, But is it time to take them seriously in the era of electrification? Then the latest experience with distributed renewables as grid assets. We're all awaiting the release of a DOE report ordered by Energy Secretary Rick Perry on how wind and solar are threatening baseload power and potentially the reliability of the grid. And we're going to go beyond the politics and look at how real-world applications um, are guiding what is actually happening on the electricity system. Then we'll complete the circuit. In our last segment, we're going to quickly flow through the most talked-about current events, including blockchain, artificial intelligence, and the role of tech giants in energy. And I'm joined by two giants in their own right. (laughs) Catherine Hamilton is the partner with 38 North Solutions. She uh, has a very storied career in this industry. She's the former uh, executive director, president of the Gridwise Alliance, and started her career as a distribution engineer at Dominion Power. Um, hello, Catherine. What, what would you be doing now if you were still in the electricity sector, do you think? Would you be CEO of Dominion Power Oh, now? gee. No, I hit the glass ceiling really, really quickly. But there'd be a lot of cracks in it. <laughs> no, but it was, a, it was the best place to start. I would tell anybody, if you get a chance, work for utility, because I... You know, I really did have to take, I wasn't an engineer, so I had to take night classes in engineering and a test every six months and learn how to uh, design French drains and vaults. I did the first, um, I designed the first splice of 1000 MCM underground cable and the instructions came in Japanese. Luckily there were pictures, um, but you know, it's a great place to learn. So I was super grateful for those 10 years. Catherine's got some serious bona fides. So when you hear her talk about the electricity sector, both geeking out on policy and the changes in the grid. Um, you know she's got the experience to back it up. And Jigger Shaw also has a lot of experience. He's the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's also the co-founder of Sun Edison, the former CEO of the Carbon War Room, and uh, was formerly in business development at BP Solar. So you've been in the oil industry as well. What, what would you think you'd be doing if you were still in the oil industry? Well, when you're a senior executive at BP, you get these folks called turtles that like help you like do your work. So I do have turtles. So Thomas and Logan, say hello. Woo-hoo! 
So I'm like, you know, at Generate Capital. So I'd be, I'd, I'd be, and then I'd be telling people what they told me, which was, we don't want to talk about implementing your technology unless it has 100,000 hours of experience in one location in the field. All right, well, that brings us to our first topic, which is oil and gas majors. And this is a really interesting topic. And uh, if you look back over the last few decades, companies like BP, Chevron, Shell, um, and Exxon, they led the market in solar manufacturing and biofuels, geothermal, wind development, um, even energy efficiency. And one by one, those renewables businesses were marginalized, divested, they were walked away from. And in the case of Exxon, you know, and a whole decade's worth of research, climate research, was even, you know, covered up and walked away from. But it feels like we're in a different period now. And faced with carbon constraints, low oil prices, a coming shift to electrification, oil companies may yet become the biggest players in solar, wind, electric vehicles, and storage. So according to a new report from Wood Mackenzie, which is our parent company, uh, GTM's parent company, a fifth of revenues from the biggest oil and gas firms could come from wind and solar within the decade. So is it watch out, electric utilities? Catherine, we've seen this movie before. What do you think makes this different? Climate change. It really does. Um, I mean, we're at a point where we have to move forward on lowering emissions, and I think just for the risk profile of these companies. So there's 2.3 trillion, one-third of their capex of all the oil majors is considered unburnable carbon. So it's carbon that has to stay in the ground. That's a third of their capex. It's on their balance sheets. It has to stay in the ground. Um, or else you know, we will blow through two degrees centigrade. And I think they are all very, very aware of it. So they're all thinking about what is the transition to a low carbon future. You know, and they have some ideas about how they want to do it that will benefit them, certainly. And they're not the ones, the first people on the hooks, hook are the coal folks. So they have a tiny bit of time, but they have to leave all of that in the ground up until 2025 or we're done. Yeah, and I can tell you what we're hearing is that many of the large oil companies are not just interested in you know, understanding the numbers behind renewable energy growth, but about carbon pricing policies and the impact on their reserves. And I think that is fundamentally different as well. Interestingly, you know, Shell signed on to this Energy Transitions Commission report recently, which called for um, aggressive reductions in petroleum use, aggressive emissions reductions, um, record investments in wind and solar. And so you have many of the biggest industrial and oil and gas companies who are signing on to some pretty progressive uh, plans for addressing climate change. Bullshit. Why? I'm just saying, I mean, like, look, I think that when I was at BP, and even today I would say, that they believe that they're in monopoly markets, right? So they take oil, it doesn't matter whether it's trading at 40 bucks a barrel or it's 100 bucks a barrel, people need it because there's no alternatives to their fuels in their cars, and they don't make money, by the way, on oil in terms of on gasoline and diesel, they actually make money on waxes and all of the other, um, other value-added products that come out of the stack, right? So 50% of their profits come from those other materials, which Solazyme and all these other guys are going after. So when you're Total and you buy SunPower, that's like the worst investment you could make because they're not actually good at manufacturing stuff, right? They're good at selling into a commodity stream. And so... 
Unless you think sun power is a commodity, which I don't think they believe they're a commodity, Total has made the wrong bet. What Total should do instead is invest in projects, right? Because what they're really good at is they have 5,000 engineers that work within the company who are the smartest people on the planet, and so they should be figuring out how to build offshore wind farms, which are very engineering intensive, or they should figure out how to do geothermal projects, which are very engineering intensive. They should not be doing solar, because that stuff clears at six and a half or seven percent interest, and they don't make money at six and a half. Right, but that's that's different than oil companies signing on to a plan to dramatically reduce global emissions. Yeah, that's the same. You're right. That's the same as mayors signing on to reduce their carbon emissions than not doing anything. So right, but, that's but great. many of the oil companies are d investing in projects. No, Shell has, not. In, Shell has invested no. in 10 of the biggest no. wind oil. farms in the world. No, you're wrong. I, I'm Absolutely. tired. No, no, come on. Chevron, Look, like, is a Chevron was a leader in geothermal project development. Shell has invested in some of the biggest offshore wind farms in the world. Stat Oil is investing in many of the same offshore wind farms and is developing other projects uh, independent floating right, Stephen, offshore let's, wind projects. Let's calm it down for a second, and let's start from the fact that if what Catherine is saying is true, which I believe, Stat Oil, which is probably one of the more progressive you know, groups in the world, given Norway and all this other stuff, they are just now hitting 5% of their entire capital budget. Right? This is not their balance sheet, the stuff they've done for 40, 50 years. 5% of their incremental new spending is going into something that we could characterize as clean energy. When I talk to the people at Statoil, they're like, Jigger, we can't find enough opportunities to invest. Otherwise, we would do more. You and I know through years of doing this podcast and hosting this forum and other things that if they were really serious, putting together, for them, it's like 15 billion maybe a year that they put into CapEx, new CapEx. So 5% is less than a billion is what they're putting in every year. You're telling me that I should call them a leader, give them a medal, put them on stage and sing their country's national anthem because they hit $800 million of investment per year. I did that last year. Give me a freaking medal. Yeah, so I think we can, we, can, we can find a happy medium. That would be me. So what I would just say is, yes, they're talking about it. And part of the reason they're trying to come together and talk about it, and they haven't acted as much as they want to or they could do, given their balance sheets, is that they want to be in control. It's a little bit like utilities want to be in control of their own fate. So if they can be in control, more in control of this and decide together that we have a much more holistic carbon reduction plan, we have transparency, we have more certainty, we're able to decide what we want to invest in. It's not going to be overnight. They're not going to do what you want them to do. But at the same time, they are coming together and trying to figure out there is something here that is more important than digging for drilling for oil it's money but money is going to be an issue when they have all these risk profiles to deal with and right. money is going to be an issue when they're thinking about a little i'll give you another example future. you look at like dong energy right out of denmark they're by far the largest investor in offshore wind in europe right not shell not stat oil not bp yeah. so now stat oil six years later comes in and says we're going to buy the rights to do the project out of new york fantastic at the time at which you're even in the top three of investors in offshore wind, I will think about giving you a medal for something. Yeah, but we're not asking to give these companies medals. What we're saying is that there's something different happening. No. That the, that the macroeconomic trends and the carbon constraints are creating a long-term investment trend for these companies. I am saying oil that they... Growth, oil, growth for oil demand will grow a half a percent a year from now until... 
the mid-2030s. Renewable energy demand will grow 10, 15, 20% a year globally. We've the writing's read, on the wall. We've all read the McKinsey report, the Wood McKenzie report, the Bloomberg New Energy Finance report. We've also read their press releases. That being said, I'm telling you right now that 20 years from now, it is far more likely that BP, Shell, and ExxonMobil are bankrupt than that they're actually good investors and all this stuff. Wow, that's, that's, that's bold. I don't even know how to really respond to that. Why? What's the pathway to Well, how many wood companies are you heralding from the, 19, from the 1880s that became big in coal? How many coal companies are you heralding from the 1930s that made the transition to oil? And how many oil companies will I be heralding that got into renewable energy? Practically zero. And so I'm just saying that, like, at some point you have to have to read a history book. You can't just read the press releases that came out from them last week. You have to say, like, have they actually ever done something that looks and feels like leadership in any way, except for doing some sort of Shell future scenario or whatever else? I mean, the CEO of Shell was on stage a year and a half ago and said, I don't believe the renewable energy industry can power the world. Therefore, I have to continue to look for more oil and gas. On top of that, if you look at their data, since 2008, the financial crisis, every dollar that they've invested in new oil and gas exploration has cost them about $57 a barrel just to find the oil, right? Oil pr prices are now $43 a barrel. So they, by definition, are making like a negative 4% return on equity on every dollar they've invested. I know that I can beat a negative 4% return on equity. I can do much better than a negative 4% return on equity. But they're not shifting their $100 billion budgets between Chevron and these guys. They're continuing to do deep sea oil drilling, figure out how to like, do more shale in, you know, in this place, figure out how to do more tar sands. National parks. Right, while giving you a great press release. No, I'm not going to let them off the hook for that. Thank you. Catherine, let, let's just talk about some interesting investments that oil companies are making. Is there anything that stands out to you that you think is notable. We're not handing out medals here, but we're talking about you know, specific investments or company strategies that you think have, that are worth mentioning. Yeah, so the one thing that I think is worth mentioning is the Exxon shareholder decision. So right. last year, only 38% of the shareholders voted, and this year, for positive, and this year it was 62%. And the resolution was just to be more open and give more details um, and an analysis on the climate risk based on what the company is doing. But that, to me, is a big signal and a step forward. And Exxon, as we know, has been pretty disingenuous for many, many years about this. But I think that signals a shift. Um, and all of the majors, just from my work with the World Economic Forum, they're all coming to the table to try to figure out how do we stitch together you know, whether some of them survive or not, um, they are trying to figure it out. I do think you're going to see an extraordinary amount of investment in solar by the Saudi kingdom. And the main reason is because um, the IPO for Saudi Ramco is in trouble. And the reason it's in trouble is because a third of all of Saudi's oil production is being diverted to the Saudi electricity company at $6 a barrel so they can provide their people electricity at $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour. And so they're saying, well, actually, we should put a bunch of solar in, free up that oil, sell it for $43 a barrel instead of to ourselves at six, and then Saudi Aramco will be more profitable, and we might actually hit this $2 trillion IPO, right? And so that's very self-serving, and if, if they get $30 billion of solar in the ground, I'll be very happy about it. So, so I'm, I do think that the sovereign oil companies, who are basically doing a lot of negative economic things like 
giving their people subsidized energy that they could be actually selling to outside parties are going to do a lot of proactive um, things. But I don't think that the, the big oil majors are going to transform themselves into energy companies away from being fossil energy companies. Yeah, I mean, I, I read a good quip recently that oil companies think of themselves as energy companies, but they're commodities companies. Right. And uh, interestingly, Saudi Aramco set up a major renewable energy investment fund with yep. Shell earlier this year. Let's move on and, and dig a little bit deeper into the grid and talk about some novel approaches to using distributed assets for actual grid reliability. Um, so using distributed assets for reliability services, for a variety of grid services, isn't new. You know, in the 90s, engineers were using variable speed, dri variable speed drives and SCADA systems on wind, wind farms for voltage control, uh, creating the first grid services enabled wind farms. Uh, of course, air conditioners and industrial loads have long been used for demand response. But again, I think, you know, the, as is the premise for our oil co uh, company discussion, like we are entering a, a very different world. And PV plants can now be used for frequency regulation. Electric vehicles are proving pretty effective at load shifting. Houses and buildings are able to become real-time resources. Battery storage is here for real, can be paired with any kind of power plant. You know, admittedly, it's very early for many of these resources, and of course, the business models to support them, as many people in this room can attest to. But they are opening us up to a pretty new pathway for the grid. And since we're all sitting here awaiting this DOE report on renewables and their impact on baseload and broader grid reliability, we want to talk about some of the real-world case studies that signal where we are headed. So let's start off with our picks on the most interesting uses of distributed assets for grid services. Um, Catherine, let's start with you. What's your top okay. pick? Yeah, so I decided to pick SMUD, Sacramento Municipal Utility District. And luckily, I ran into someone here from SMUD that I could interview, which was super handy. So when I was running Gridwise Alliance, SMUD in 2009 got a huge grant to do smart meters. And I know uh, Val Jensen was here yesterday. I don't know if he's still here, but ComEd also got a big grant to do smart meters. And all of these utilities have scars, permanent scars, um, based on the rollouts of those meters where people thought they were going to you know, start controlling their brain waves and all kinds of other things. Well, so flash for that, fast forward to today, SMUD has taken a ton of learnings from all of that data. And the nice thing about SMUD is that it's really representative. It's fully integrated utility. It's got 500,000 customers. They're of all socioeconomic statuses. They are of many, many use cases, every representative use case, and they can really be a living laboratory. So they're looking at, and they've done a ton of pilots, and they've learned from those pilots. So now they're trying to kind of stitch it together with using third-party innovators that they work with daily to try to figure out how do we solve these issues and some of the things they're thinking through is like how do we take this customer adoption data and forecast DER in a way that DERs become useful to us and become a way for us to actually help our business model because remember they're a nonprofit utility they're very very worried about the cost of the consumer because those are their owners they're looking at how is the distribution grid impacted? They have the data to really figure out how is it impacted um, and the bulk power system because they're fully integrated and also then overlay that with utility financial models. So really stem to stir and look at what's going on on the grid and they can do this, find these learnings and then how do we package them and help 
um, actually monetize those to help other municipalities. I know Jigger beats up on the other mayors. Well, maybe SMUD can teach the other mayors how to really become 100% renewable and how to really use DERs so that they're much more um, beneficial and become not a cost, but a resource to the grid. And so SMUD did this report with, um, they used their uh, test case with a SEPA and Black and & Veatch study to look at, um, you know, how are customers really leading the investment in the utility? How do we make sure that we don't look at DER individually, but really on aggregate? And how does that impact us? And then how do we change policies and business models so that municipalities and really any vertically integrated utility or system and a system of systems can stay in business and grow. So I thought that was yeah. the most interesting one I read. And so they're modeling out to like the mid-2030s as well yeah, in that definitely. project. I think a shout out to SEPA is due because they have attempted over the last couple of years to create standards for data collection and ways to work with consumers and model that data and think about behind the meter assets as ways to provide grid services. And so that was a foundational report for how SMUD and Black and & Veatch modeled this. Yeah, and let's stop talking about cost shifting. Let's just stop that conversation and let's talk about how do we really reap the benefits of DER and enable everybody to benefit. Right, I mean, I think it's Amen. fair to still talk about cost shifting, but it's, you know, you There's very no, quickly can pivot to the conversation yes. of utilizing these assets. And, and I think no, that conversation is getting a lot more I don't lot think more that mature. SMUD's having a conversation about cost shifting, which is why like, it's good, right? I mean, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. like, the benefit of having a, you know, basketball superstar as your mayor. Um, you can talk about the benefits. Um, I, look, I, I'm a huge fan of what SMUD's done, and I, I really do think that they are a model. I think, I think they're helped by the fact that they're a municipal utility and helped by the fact that they, um, you know, really had some dark days in the 90s. Um, and, and they really took those lessons from their dark days to become more prosumer. And that started back in 2003, 2004 with their solar programs. And I think it's continuing today. Yeah, the stats coming out of California are pretty remarkable. And in SMUD territory in particular, in this report, they estimated that every year, you know, third parties and customers are financing around $200 million of projects, you know, behind the meter distributed projects, which is more than what they're, they're paying for for yeah. renewables. Yeah. Uh, so you know, they, they also see the writing on the wall. They've got to do something. Yeah. Um, Jigger. What is a project that is most interesting to you? So the project that's most interesting to me is... Um, oh, you were actually looking it up on your phone. I thought you were ignoring me earlier when you yeah, were... Yeah, no, I am. It's his notes. I am. I mine on well, paper. it's this stupid phone. I love... I, I got this new phone. It's like Samsung. And like it constantly goes into sleep mode like every three seconds. And then it needs my fingerprint to like turn back on. I feel like I'm like a CIA agent over here. Um, but... Um, but basically, it's the first solar NREL balancing grid with uh, utility-scale solar. Um, it's not the utility-scale solar bid as much. It's the 300-megawatt project out of the Mojave. It's more that inverters actually had this extraordinary capability of providing voltage support, frequency regulation, and other services back in the 80s. We sort of banned them from doing that um, through the IEEE 1547 standards. And then... You know, I remember when First Solar first launched, it had this program with Tucson Electric Power in like 2001, 2002, where they were just dumping all their solar panels in there to test them to make sure they were working. And the inverters were of such poor capability that, that Tucson Electric Power actually thought it was destabilizing their grid. I think it was, it was called Springerville, the project. And now to see First Solar actually saying, no, we're unlocking all of these services in the inverter. We're actually providing grid benefits so that 
when a cloud goes overhead, we can actually dynamically, um, you know, uh, operate within the grid to like make actually make it more stable, not less stable. We can get additional revenue streams if the rules allowed us to do so. And then it also, you know, I think allows you to co-locate batteries and some of these other technologies to get the same benefits. Because if you're going to manage it for that purpose anyway, you might as well manage other resources within the same markets and bid that capacity in. And I do think that this is something that can go all the way down to 600 kilowatt solar systems on Walmart stores. I don't think it's actually only the first solar utility scale plants. I think it's really unlocking the potential of inverters to provide all these additional services to the grid. And I presume that none of that is going to be covered, none of those technological capabilities will be covered in the DOE baseload threat report. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so first of all, a shout out to Jeff St. John, who's one of our grid reporters, our, our, our grid edge editor, who wrote a couple really good pieces on what First Solar is doing to provide voltage control with that plant. And that project has actually been in the works for the last seven years. Mm -hmm. So they've got a lot of data and a lot of experience and inverter models have changed a lot over those seven, eight years. Um, interestingly, I think what a lot of people miss when they see solar as this on-off resource is that you know, these uh, ride-through capabilities and voltage support capabilities are being mandated by NERC. And yeah. so many of the big power plants being developed have those inverter capabilities, and so they are more reactive resources. And um, also, you know, the, this solar power plant, this 300-megawatt plant, is fa much faster responding. It's more akin to a battery than, you know, a natural gas resource, and it's much faster responding than natural gas. So I think this says a lot about where we're headed with uh, the controls of large-scale solar systems. Yeah, and wind is doing the same. And wind has been doing the same oh, thing for a long time, too, right? Yeah. yeah since, since, since the mid to late 90s, yeah. Well, and I think GE is actually even including batteries in some of their uh, new wind turbine offerings, right? Exactly, yeah, and that's what my case study was. Um, last month, what month are we in? Are we in June? Yeah. We're in June. So <laughs> for a few more days. Earlier this month, uh, GE said that it is it has a hybrid platform for uh, batteries or thermal and renewable generators that it is releasing. So GE controls one third of all power plants. GE technology is integrated into one third of all power plants around the world. And so what it says now is we've tested this battery natural gas platform that allows us to, uh, you know, basically create an instantaneous resource for natural gas. You don't have to wait for it to generator to turn on and off, creating this spinning reserve system. We've de deployed that for SCE, and it worked really well, and we have the control system in place to, to integrate that on any type of generator, thermal or hydro, excuse me, thermal or renewable. So on hydroelectric facilities, on wind, uh, integrated with solar and uh, natural gas and coal plants. Can they get 1,300 gigawatts out of those hydroelectric dams? <laughs> yeah, right. So that, I think that's the key to getting to 100% renewables, according to Jacob, Mark Jacobson's study. That's a conversation for another day. But I think what this says to us is that batteries are here, uh, they're ready, and we're going to start to see you know, batteries put on pretty much everything. You know, We're not quite there yet, but it's a signal that GE says the technological capabilities are there. One of the biggest industrial, most important power plant uh, technology providers in the world says we're there. And now it's just a matter of market signals. And Catherine, you can probably speak and to the market policy, signals yeah. element. Yeah, I mean, when I sat down with a bunch of executives who briefed me on it, and they said, 
we're ready to do this now. It's just about how the markets evolve. Well, I mean, I, can I'm, we get rewarded for this? I'm curious whether you guys think that, like Jeff Immelt's tenure at GE was sort of clouded by the fact that he thought about this stuff 10 years ago and never moved the needle on GE's sales, right? I mean, in the end, they bought Alstom. You can be too early, right? You can be, you can be too early. I don't think it's too early. I mean, the technology was there. He just couldn't get utility companies until they blew a hole in the ground with Aliso Canyon to like actually deploy it, right? I mean, it's one of those weird things where, I mean, he launched this entire eco-imagination thing. They've got this extraordinary sales effort. But they end up buying Alstom, which is basically the largest coal servicing company in the world, because they had to double down on coal to like meet their revenue targets because this next generation stuff wasn't moving the needle on their stock. Yeah, but when, when I was doing Gridwise Alliance and Emelt came and spoke at our conference, um, they really were ahead of it. They really were ahead of their time because as utilities were trying to roll out these smart meters, consumers were not ready to engage at all. And now, you just think about how much control consumers have over every aspect of their life. Now, they have the technology out there and consumers are willing to engage. And I feel like we've come a long way since then. So I do think they were, they were ahead of where utilities were, certainly. Right, but what does that say about someone like Immelt? Does it, does it say that when you're the CEO of GE, you should wait longer? That you shouldn't be ahead of it? You oh, no. shouldn't tell people that your revenues are going to come from eco-imagination because they're not? I mean, well, look, you can, you can be too early to this market. And I think GE has gone through a number of evolutions over the last 15 years. It has finally dialed into this industrial internet concept. And it just wants to throw sensors on everything. And it's been doing that as part of eco-imagination for a long time um, on the wind development side. You know, it's creating these so-called yeah. brilliant wind turbines. And that's been a significant piece of its business. And yeah, and just on their smart grid team, which is not part of eco-imagination, they've got a lot of learnings from what they've done. Right, right. And I, so I think like many of the oil companies that we talked about in the first segment, who were way too early to the renewables game, um, I think that's, that's what happened with many of GE's investments. Yeah, I just think that like, you know, S&C Electric, which of course is, you know, sponsoring this event, but then you've got ABB and, you know, Schneider Electric and all these other companies, which, you know, frankly are not like oil companies and they're not like utility companies. They're more like Halliburton or Schlumberger, where they're really the place where all the patents and the IP and the know-how and the tech like gets, you know, placed such that when a utility company wants to make the move, they're the people they call and say, okay, well, here's a billion dollars, go retrofit all of our stuff and get it done and give us a warranty and make sure it works, right? And so I want to see those contracts flowing. And I'm just saying that I think part of what clouded Jeff Immelt's tenure is that the contracts never started flowing under his tenure. But it's not flowing for anybody. I mean, you talk to pretty much any vendor in this room and you know, every project can be a headache, right? We're just not at that point yet. So well, I think that's we, the case for this entire industry right now, and it has been the case for the last decade. But I think that's what we're saying is that basically, like, the technology is ready. The case studies are proven. Like, this is far better. It's not around consumer cost shifting. It's about the benefits. Right. And we're not making the case, I guess, well enough to regulators and other influencers to get them to stop building boondoggle sort of natural gas plants and instead do this stuff. Well, we're getting there, right? I mean, it does take a crisis for people to start realizing the value of this stuff. So the Aliso Canyon gas shortage, the shutdown of the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant, uh, the 
overloading of circuits in Hawaii due to you know, massive amounts of solar PV. These things cause people to focus on new technological remedies. And so GE can come in and deploy a couple of these new hybrid systems, test them out, and say, okay, now they're ready for the broader market. And so this crisis is actually a good thing and gets people to wake up to the technology alternatives. Yeah, so that's California and Hawaii. I just spent the last two weeks at regulator conferences in the MARC conference, which is Mid-America, and MACRUC. I was just there on Monday in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and that's like the Mid-Atlantic people. They're not there yet. They really aren't. They're still talking. The incumbent utilities are still saying, well, you know, we need to prop up all those old plants and keep them going for baseload. So not everybody has shifted their thinking yet. And that takes This us, room is full of people who have, but not the regulators. And that takes us back to Rick Perry's study, yeah, right? Definitely. I mean, that is, that is his audience. Yeah. But when you have, you know, a massive utility like Southern Company invest in a microgrid developer like Power Secure and then partner with advanced microgrid solutions to develop behind the meter services, uh, that's, a, you know, that's a, a signal that there is a shift going on among utilities that may not have been the early adopters or who are facing the same kind of grid constraints like utilities in Hawaii, California. And who are trying to get rate relief for huge boondoggle projects. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, a, a conversation for another day. We've talked about those projects uh, a number of times. So, you know, we're, we're already running down the clock here, so let's go around the circuit and talk about uh, some of the, the most discussed stories in the industry today. And I'm going to present some framing for many of these stories, and I want you two to react to them. So let's talk about blockchain first. Um, the great disruptor in energy or just a novel application? I don't yeah. think it's either. I think it's, ena- it? it's an enabler. I think it will help us be able to monetize and be able to do seamless transactive energy at the edge of the grid. I don't think that's a disruption. I think that's enabling. Hmm. So the enabler of the disruptors. Jigger. <laughs> I need to see 100,000 hours of testing in the field. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how drastically is artificial intelligence going to change the utility workforce? Jigger. Mm, I don't know. I mean, well, it's one of those weird okay, things so, where it's like, you know, you go to this conference and people are like, God, what am I going to tweet out? God, I have nothing to tweet out. Oh, we should do tweet out artificial intelligence. That sounds good. Like, I mean, <laughs> I'm just trying to get my utility company to like do a little basic tree trimming. Right? I mean, we just lost power for two hours last week because they forgot to tree trim the like, tree in my front yard. So at some point, I'm just like, artificial intelligence? Maybe just well, some intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> totally fair. And I agree that like, a lot of these concepts are overhyped. Uh, but everything from, you know, you can call everything from AMI to drones artificial intelligence. No, look, so clearly I mean, that's going to change the utility workforce. Tom right? Siebel, the, number, the way that you roll trucks out in the field, the way that you survey down lines will oh yeah, change so they can the way that you smarter. go and service things remotely yeah. by using uh, augmented and virtual reality. These things are here. They're being tested out in a major way. And so they will change how people are interacting and servicing the grid. And I think actually potentially provide a positive because if you can sort of tell a good story, then you can attract a younger workforce. Yeah. That is, you know, I mean, the, the cats the in the tree, you still need the firefighter to go get it. So you still, when the transformer goes out, you still need somebody to go out and repair it. You still need mm-hmm. physical bodies. But I think for planning purposes, for back of house, 
you know, like, or, you know, all their systems, I think it will be helpful. Artificial intelligence to me is really about big data. And when you look at all the big data firms for the utility companies, they've all gone out of business or shifted, right? I mean, Tom Siebel is one of the, you know, billionaires here in the Valley and University of Illinois grad. Um, he, you know, like basically shifted his business away from utility companies. He got his initial investment from Exelon and Exelon didn't want to deploy his stuff. So now he's like, well, let's figure out how to use this in oil and gas. Let's figure out how to use this in other industries that actually value big data and like doing all this stuff. Like he made all these calculations and then no one bought his stuff. And L did, but not any other utilities. Yeah, I mean, the same thing is being faced by uh, many of the companies here at this conference. Uh, so that brings us to the next question, perfect segue. Will, by the end of the decade, we see a billion-dollar software company servicing the grid edge? Yeah, and it'll have to be broken up like the big telecoms. <laughs> So isn't Oracle a billion-dollar company? Aren't What's they that? serving yeah, the Yeah, I guess, edge? well, by, <laughs> organic, organic growth, right? You're talking about Oracle's acquisition of Opower. I'm talking about a company that grows organically into a billion-dollar software company. Yeah, I doubt it. I mean, I mean, look, the way this stuff always works is, in this space, is you get to be maybe a $100 million company, and then GE buys you and says that you're part of their, you know, sort of smart software play that they've got some big office here in the Valley for. And, and you know, like ABB will buy you or Schneider Electric will buy you or SNC Electric will buy you. And, like, and they have good salesmen or women to get into the channels, right? I don't see these guys organically getting to a billion dollars. Yeah, we hear something for a couple of weeks and then we don't hear <laughs> anything again or hear very little. Yeah. Okay, um, we've talked about this subject many times and I think it's, Time to revisit this one because of, uh, you know, the surge of in-home speaking devices like Google Home and Alexa. Are Google, Amazon, Apple, Amazon finally ready to be players in energy management? I think it's going to be an app on top of them. So, right. yes, I think that their technology will be used um, for residential DR. I mean, you know, something on the order of 60% now of the duck curve is residential load, right? So everyone wants to talk about energy. Enernock and their acquisition of Bionel and all the other stuff. But like ultimately, 60% of the problem is really residential loads. Most of those thermostats, at least in California, but also now increasingly around the world, or sorry, around the country, are smart thermostat enabled, right? So they can actually be controlled by Alexa or Google Home or some of these things, right? And then, and so, and then in California and Texas, they've unlocked the Zigbee communications technologies within the smart meters. And so I think you're going to have these companies who are sort of apps on top of this stuff that integrate all that stuff and then, you know, sell their wares and convince people to opt into their service and all that stuff. But I don't see Google and Apple and Amazon doing it. Yeah, right. it's going to be lifestyle apps. Yep, totally agree. Uh, Catherine, last one. What's the single most important design question you think um, this room is facing or the utility sector is facing? And I bet you think my answer is going to be FERC. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet it's a FERC um, no on storage, right? No, I mean, there is, um, there really is a need for us to, it's bubbling up, this like state versus federal jurisdiction. I mean, the biggest short-term thing is making sure that we um, allow third-party innovators to participate in the grid and allow them to be able to have access to consumers and to data. And the long-term, the biggest issue is, is uh, global warming and what are we going to do about it and how are we going to be the solutions providers 
All right, let's wrap up and tell our listeners something they may not know. This is the part of the show when we you know, take something that we're reading that's interesting or something from our daily work lives and uh, share it with you. Catherine, what's yours? Yes, I wanted to mention a new program called Million Solar Stars. It's modeled after Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots program, and it's a group of people really working with schools to enable schools to benefit all over the world. They have projects in Dubai, Denver, Shanghai, Honolulu, Kenya, um, to really teach kids how to build solar, how to think about solar, how to put it on their roofs, and then have those school systems benefit. So it's called Million Solar Stars. It's pretty new, and it seems like it's a great idea. Jigger, awesome. what's yours? Um, I was reading an article by Todd Myers in the National Review where he went back after this We Are Still In effort where thousands of folks have signed up to stay into the Paris Agreement. And he looked at the 2005 pledge from Mayor Nichols from Seattle and, you know, how many folks actually reached their goals there. Um, found that not a single mayor reached their goals, like, out of that pledge. Um, very few even tracked whether they were meeting the goal. I think only like 17 mayors or something were even tracking their progress. Um, and so one of the things that I think this room needs to recognize is that um, mayors like to get put out press releases, and I think that's fine. They probably have good intentions as well. But it's incumbent upon us to continue to pressure them to actually follow through on their promises. I don't think that that they naturally are going to prioritize our work um, without that pressure. And I think that's what that stat really tells us from 2005. Yeah, I think this is probably one of the most interesting stories over the next couple of years. I mean, the people in this room are going to have to hold municipal officials' feet to the fire on reaching these targets. And next week, we're going to actually have Sam Brooks on the show, who worked in D.C. government and who wrote a great piece for us last week on why many of these claims from cities are kind of a sham. You know, they're great press release opportunities, but they're not measuring their progress, and we need to hold them to account, particularly as more cities step up um, after the Trump administration walked away from the Paris Agreement, and, and they've said that they want to hit 100% renewables or live up to the Paris targets. Super important story. Uh, mine, finally, is uh, we got an argument about this backstage. Uh, EIA released data on uh, March and April generation, and for the first time, renewables, including hydro, surpassed nuclear generation uh, for a period of two months. And Jigger said to me, oh, you and your framing, it's always renewables versus nuclear. But I think the reason why I brought this up is because it's kind of a Rorschach test for how you view nuclear. And I saw some people cover it differently. I think a lot of anti-nuclear websites said, this is a great thing, we're finally transitioning away from nuclear. A lot of activists said that, like, look, we can develop, we can develop renewables and account for lost generation in nuclear. And then, of course, people who are worried about climate change and pro-nuclear say, well, we're going to be running in place. If we start losing a lot more nuclear power plants, you're going to have to develop a hell of a lot more renewables to account for that lo a lost low-carbon generation. So I think the way I see people approaching this is interesting and it says a lot about your stance on nuclear. We should focus on coal. <laughs> yeah, right, not on shutting down nuclear plants. All right, well, that's it. Thank you so much, everyone. What a great conference. We've got an excellent day stacked up for you. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. You can get all of our episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher, Overcast, anywhere you get podcasts. Um, Make sure to check out all our backlogs and subscribe to us. You can send us an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com if you want to berate us, debate us, 
send us show ideas, or you can find all of us on Twitter, and again, have a conversation there. Thanks, everyone. We appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you.